0: You're listening to Amazing Discoveries Audio. This is For Such a Time As This, Episode 7 with Daniel Pell. Good evening and welcome to our next presentation in our series For Such a Time As This. And our presentation tonight is entitled Revelations to Witnesses, Revelations to two witnesses. We're going to look at a prophecy found in the book of Revelation and we're going to compare this amazing prophecy with an ancient story which I believe sheds light on this prophecy. But before we get into our material, as we've done on before all other presentations, we would like to have a word of prayer and ask the Holy Spirit to be with us. So please bow your heads together with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us together here again. We ask that you will bless this presentation, that you will Guide us in our study and that you will fulfill your promise that your Holy Spirit will teach us about your truth. Father, guide us and lead us. For this we pray and ask in your precious name. Amen. Amen. Just recently I came across this quotation by an unknown author, at least unknown to me. It says the following, Christianity started in Palestine as a fellowship. It moved to Greece and became a philosophy it moved to Italy and became an institution. It moved to Europe and became a culture. It moved to America and it became an enterprise. Isn't that so true? Christianity started in Palestine as a fellowship and yet it has picked up so much baggage on its way. It has moved to Greece, became a philosophy, moved to Italy, became an institution, moved to Europe, became a culture, moved to America, became an enterprise. I don't know what it became when it came, arrived here, but surely there are elements in Christianity, there are teachings in Christianity that don't really belong to what Jesus taught. What we are going to do tonight is we're going to look at a prophecy in the book of Revelation that predicted that these things would happen, that show us an example of how it happened in history, but also that leads us back to the scriptures that leads us back to the two witnesses upon which we can found upon which we can build our lives. And so I invite you to take your Bibles this evening and to turn with me to the book of Revelation to the 11th chapter, Revelation chapter 11. And here our prophecy is found regarding the two witnesses, Revelations two witnesses. Turn to Revelation chapter 11 and we'll pick it up in verse 3 Revelation chapter 11 beginning in verse 3 And the Bible says for I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy 1260 days clothed in sackcloth these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth and if anyone wants to harm them Fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies, and if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls on the earth, falls on the days of their prophecy, and they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. We read here about the two witnesses, a fascinating description of the two witnesses, Uh, Various Bible scholars have interpreted differently regarding to what these two witnesses really mean. The two witnesses, when you look closely at the two witnesses, the characteristics that they have remind us of stories that we find in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, when you look at verse 6, look at what it says about the two witnesses. They have power to shut heaven that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. Can you think of a story in the Old Testament where indeed there was a prophet that predicted that there would be no rain falling from heaven? Yes, it was the prophet Elijah. And then it continues in verse 6 and it says, They, referring to the two witnesses, have power over waters to turn them to blood. Can you remember a story in the Old Testament where there's a man that through him uh, water was turned into blood? Exactly. I hear it already. The story of Moses. Then in the end of verse six, it says, and to strike the earth with plagues. Do you remember a story where we find plagues uh, striking uh, striking the earth? Yes, again, Moses, the story of Moses. So Revelation chapter 11 and verse six Talking about the two witnesses brings characteristics into the picture of two very well-known individuals, and that is... Moses and Elijah, two individuals that we encounter in the Old Testament. Some say that the two witnesses are Moses and Elijah, and partly that is true, but we have to go a little bit deeper than that because the two witnesses might be represented by Moses and Elijah, but ultimately it was not Elijah that stopped the rain coming down from heaven. And it was not Moses that turned water into blood. It was not Moses that brought the plagues in the land of Egypt, it was God. It was God's word through Elijah. It was God's word through Moses. And so the two witnesses, represented by Moses and Elijah, but more than that, the two witnesses are the word of God, the power of God revealed in these individuals. And the two witnesses, my friends, can be revealed in you and in me today as well. It's the power of God's word. The two witnesses, they put on display the character of God. They put on display the power of God. We want to look closely at these two witnesses tonight. The language that is used in Revelation chapter 11 is directly taken and derived from an Old Testament prophet, and that prophet is the prophet Zechariah. If we go together to the prophet Zechariah, let's look at the language that is used there, and you will see that it's so familiar, it's so similar to what we just read here in Revelation chapter 11. I invite you to turn to Zechariah in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament book of Zechariah, and chapter 4. Zechariah chapter 4, and we'll begin in verse 1. Zechariah chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. And the Bible says, Now the angel who talked with me came back and wakened me as a man who was wakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? See, there's a vision here. What do you see? So I said, I am looking, and there is a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it, and on the stand, seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. Verse 3, two olive trees are by it, one at the right of the bowl and the other at its left. So I answered and spoke to the angel who talked with me, saying, what are these, my Lord? zechariah in his vision he sees two olive trees and then in verse four he asks the question what are these my lord now look at the answer in verse five and six then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me do you not know what these are and i said no my lord so he answered and said to me this is the word of the lord to zerubbabel this is the word of the lord to zerubbabel not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Take notice that as Zechariah asks the question, what are these referring to what he just saw, the two um, olive trees, the answer that is given is that they are the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel the word of the Lord just like the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11 were the was the word of God through Elijah and it was the word of God through Moses here the word of God is working through Zerubbabel and how does that word work it's not by might nor by power but by the spirit by the spirit of God the Holy Spirit my friends, as we look at this incredible prophecy in Revelation chapter eleven, and we look here at Zechariah, the book of Zechariah, we find familiar a familiar um, scene. We find similarity in the language. As a matter of fact, Zechariah sees a vision of a lampstand, and he sees a vision of two olive trees. He asks what these is what these are, and the answer is it's the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. The word of the Lord would be empowered by his spirit. Zerubbabel would be a mouthpiece for God. As a matter of fact, Zechariah chapter four and verse seven, look at what it says. Right right after what we just read, verse seven says, Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain and he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace to it. So before Zerubbabel, a mountain would be made a plain. Now, Zerubbabel did not have that power to make a mountain into a plain. Neither did Elijah have power to stop the rain from heaven. Neither did Moses have the power to change water into blood. But it's the power of the Spirit of God working through these men. Amen? It's the power of God working through them. It's the power of the Word. It's the Word of God. The scriptures. The two witnesses is the power of God's word word, working in individuals like Moses, like Elijah, like Zerubbabel, and like you and me. We can be added to that picture. God wants to work in us, His Word. He wants His Word to flow through us. As a matter of fact, in the book of Psalms, chapter 119. And 105 we're very many of us will be familiar with this scripture it says your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path the two witnesses they brought light because the scriptures bring light the word of God is a lamp to our feet a light to our path it gives us direction in life revelation chapter 11 if we turn back there now Let's look a little closer at this prophecy, Revelation chapter 11, and look at verse 5 and 6, Revelation 11, verses 5 and 6, look at what the Bible says, and if anyone wants to harm them, talking about the two witnesses, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies, and if anyone, anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in lists in this manner these have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy and they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire these this, this power of god's word is put on display here you see god's word has the power to create when we go all the way back to creation god said let there be light and there was light he created everything in this world and that creative power of God's word remains. And that's why you see in the stories of scripture, how that through men and women, God could work his power and he could manifest it. His word stands the test of time. Now, in order to understand this prophecy in Revelation chapter 11 and the power of God's word, We need to go back to a story that I believe sheds more light on the prophecy here in Revelation. If you turn with me to the book of Mark, we turn from the book of Revelation and we'll come back there in in a little bit, but turn with me to the book of Mark in the New Testament, the Gospel of Mark, and turn to the chapter 9, and we have here the event which is referred to as the Mount of Transfiguration, the Mount of Transfiguration. An incredible experience that Jesus had with some of his disciples here and I believe that this story sheds light on the prophecy of Revelation chapter 11. In Revelation chapter 11 particularly these two witnesses are described as uh, we know it's the word of God but the description that is given refers particularly to two individuals and that is Elijah and Moses Now, Elijah and Moses are encountered in another place in the New Testament. We know their story from the Old Testament. We find them in another place in the New Testament. Um, It's not in Revelation, but it's in the book of Mark. In Mark chapter 9, we read about these two individuals on the mount together with Jesus, appearing there with Jesus. Now, let's look at this story for a moment. Mark chapter 9, and we'll begin right there in verse 1. Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. And he said to them, Jesus speaking here, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. Now, many people have been troubled by that verse. Jesus says, I'm telling you, some people standing here will not taste death till they see the kingdom come with great power. How can that be when Jesus spoke that 2,000 years ago and he has not yet come? How could it be that Jesus could say that? Well, you continue to read, and right after the words of Jesus there, uh, we have the story of the Mount of Transfiguration. And this story really is a type of the kingdom of God coming. It's a type of the second coming of Jesus Christ in the end of time. And in this story, we encounter Elijah and Moses. We encounter the two witnesses. Take notice of the story in verse 2. Mark chapter 9 and verse 2, it says, now after six days... Peter, James, and John, uh, and uh, now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, led them up on a mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining, exceeding white like snow, such as no laundry on earth can whiten them. Look at verse 4, and Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Can you imagine three of the disciples, Peter, James, and John? They are allowed to, to join their master, Jesus, and they climb up this hill. And on top of the hill, Jesus is transfigured before them. In other words, Jesus appears glorified before them. Now they see him truly as the son of God. They are looking at Jesus and he is brightly shining. He looks like a king of kings and Lord of lords. As a matter of fact, he looks exactly like he looks when he's going to come the second time they see Jesus in all his glory. And then two other individuals appear there on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah, Moses and Elijah, and they talk with Jesus. As a matter of fact, in another account of the Gospels, in the book of Luke, uh, and in Luke chapter uh, 9, you can also read about the Mount of Transfiguration, and it talks about uh, about um, these two individuals, Moses and Elijah, meeting with Jesus on the mount, and it actually tells you what they were talking about. It refers to their conversation, and they were actually discussing what Jesus was about to go through, that he, what he was facing, the trials he was facing, the death, his death that was soon going to take place. Can you imagine that Moses and Elijah were sent from heaven to comfort Jesus at such a time as that, as what he was going through? At such a time that he was facing Calvary. But prior to that, God was sending him an encouragement from heaven. Moses and Elijah appear on the Mount of Transfiguration. They converse with Jesus. And Peter, James, and John, they're beholding this scene. They're looking at all of this happening before their very eyes. Now, this scene here on the Mount of Transfiguration is really a miniature picture of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Think about it for a moment. Moses and Elijah appear. Jesus appears in all his glory as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. When Jesus comes the second time as King of King and Lord of Lords, we know that there's gonna be two types of people. The Bible teaches that when Jesus comes again, there's going to be a resurrection. You can read about that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. There's going to be this massive, great resurrection of those that put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Moses was also resurrected. We know that uh, Moses is, is now in heaven. He was resurrected and he is really a type of those that in the end of time when Jesus comes again will be resurrected from the grave. There's also another people that will live when Jesus Christ comes again and they will be translated to heaven. Also in the same passage there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it not only talks about the resurrection, but it talks about those that are alive will be caught up together with those that are resurrected to meet the Lord in the air. So there will be two groups of people, those that will resurrect and those that will be living and that will be translated. Isn't it interesting that on the Mount of Transfiguration, this miniature picture of the second coming of Jesus, we have Moses and Elijah. Moses representing those that will be resurrected, Elijah representing those that will go to heaven without tasting death. Remember Elijah the prophet, at the end of his life, he did not die a natural death. We read in the scriptures that he was taken up by a fiery chariot into heaven. And so we know that when a person dies they rest in the grave and the Bible teaches that at the end of time when Jesus Christ comes back those that have put their faith in Jesus will be resurrected. Those that are alive at His coming and that have put their faith in Jesus together with those that have now been resurrected will meet the Lord in the air. It's almost like here in Mark chapter 9 this scene of the Mount of Transfiguration is bringing our minds straight to that glorious event in the end of time when Jesus Christ returns as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus appears there shining in his brightness and Peter, James and John are watching this scene. Now, interesting when, when it is all, when when this is all taken place and they're on their way back down the mountain, take notice of what Jesus says to the disciples, to Peter, James and John in Mark chapter nine and verse nine, he says, Now, as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they were not to tell about that which they had experienced there on the mountain, but they could once the Son of Man had risen from the dead, once Jesus had resurrected. Now, in the New Testament, there's only one place outside of the Gospels where one of these three individuals that witnessed the scene actually refers back to this event. Who were the disciples that were with Jesus? Peter, James, and John, right? Now, one of them refers back to this scene, and that is Peter, only in one place. And I want you to take notice of how he talks about this experience. Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. And take notice as Peter reflects back upon that event on the mountain he says the following about it, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 to verse 18, and he is addressing the believers, and he says, for we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. I want you to to think and ponder about those words for a moment. Peter says, we're not telling you fables when we're talking about the coming of Jesus. And then to to, to really build up his argument, he says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And the people are thinking to themselves, how could Peter be an eyewitness of the coming of Jesus when it has not yet happened? Well, take notice what he continues to say in verse 17. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him, where? On the holy mountain. As a matter of fact, there were only two times in the gospels that you can read about the voice from heaven being heard. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. One time was at the baptism of Jesus when he came up out of the water. And the second time was at the Mount of Transfiguration. And clearly Peter is talking about that event here. He talks about the voice that they heard on the holy mountain. So as Peter is referring back to that event, he is Pointing to that that event in the context of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Isn't that fascinating? in the context of the second coming of Jesus Christ, Peter says, you're not following a, a devised fable. You're not following some kind of fairy tale. You can be sure that Christ is coming because I was an eyewitness. I was an eyewitness on the holy mountain when I heard that voice, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Peter was on that holy mountain. He beheld Jesus glorified and he saw Moses and Elijah conversing with Jesus, talking with Jesus. Moses and Elijah being types of the two groups of people that will be at the end of time when Jesus comes, those that will be resurrected, those that will be translated. But Moses and Elijah are more than just types of the people that will be at the end of time. There, the resurrected and the translated ones. They are also types of the word of God. As we have seen in the book of Revelation chapter 11, The two witnesses are described as events in the life of Moses and Elijah. These are the two two witnesses, in essence, are the word of God, but Moses and Elijah are used as types of that word, of the word of God. As a matter of fact, Jesus, when he referred to the scriptures, he would oftentimes refer to Moses and the prophets. There are various places where Jesus would refer to the scriptures as Moses and the prophets. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, and then we have the prophets, and one of the great prophets was Elijah. So when you talk about Moses and Elijah, it's really pointing to the scriptures, to Moses and the prophets, to the scriptures, or we could even say to the Old and New Testament, the scriptures that testify of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus said in John chapter 5 and verse 39, he said, search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. They are they which testify of me. They are they which testify of me. On that Mount of Transfiguration, something special was happening. Jesus was glorified, and Moses and Elijah were testifying of Jesus. They were right there. And then the father, the heavenly father, his voice is heard. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You know, the Bible says where two or three are gathered, where two or three witnesses are there, that case shall stand. Here we have three witnesses from heaven, Moses, Elijah, and the heavenly father. We also have three witnesses on earth. We have Peter, James, and John, all there on the Mount of Transfiguration. It is a type of of the last days. It is a type of the word of God and the power of that word. As a matter of fact, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Malachi and let us look a little bit closer at this topic. Turn to the book of Malachi. That's the last book in the Old Testament. And in Malachi chapter four, the last chapter in the Old Testament, we want to look at some of the very last verses there of the Old Testament, the last verses of chapter four. Malachi chapter four. And look at verse 4, 5, and 6, the last verses of the Old Testament. It says the following, Remember the law of Moses, my servant. In other words, remember my witness. Remember Moses, the law of my servant. Which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with the statues and judgments. And look at what it says next in verse 5. Behold, I send you, Who? Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great, coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. It's interesting. Elijah had already come by this time. He was a prophet of the past. He no longer lived in the days of Malachi. Malachi says, remember the law of Moses. And then he adds to it. He says, I'm going to send you who? Elijah the prophet. Now Elijah had already come, but Elijah was coming. Kind to of come back. He was not going to come back in flesh and blood. But the spirit of Elijah was going to come back. As a matter of fact, there was a person living in the days of Jesus that Jesus pointed to and said, he has the spirit of Elijah. Do you know who that was? It was John the Baptist, exactly. You can read about that in the New Testament. You can read how Jesus pointed to John the Baptist and said, this is Elijah. This is the Elijah to come. But my friends, not only did Elijah come, the spirit of Elijah come in the days of Jesus on John the Baptist, which was a forerunner of the first coming of Jesus Christ, but in the end of time, there will be a generation of forerunners of the second coming of Jesus Christ, which will also receive the spirit of Elijah, the spirit of the two witnesses, the power of the word of God. Now, take notice here in Malachi chapter 4, It says in verse 5, Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. What will he do? Verse 6, He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. In other words, there is a blessing upon the spirit of Elijah. There's a blessing through the spirit of Elijah. There's a blessing through the word of God. It will bring unity to families. Amen. It will unite families together. This is the word of God has the power to unite God's people. Yet what will happen when the word of God is rejected? What will happen when the two witnesses are rejected? Well, the the last words of the Old Testament is a solemn warning of what will happen when the two witnesses are rejected. It says in verse six, the last part of the verse, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. In Revelation chapter 11, the prophecy of the two witnesses, it is a striking prophecy of the fulfillment of these very words. When the word of God is removed, when the two witnesses are removed, a curse is the result. If through the spirit of Elijah there's unity in the family, then when the spirit of Elijah is gone, when the word of God is removed, what happens in the family? There is strife, there's contention, there is the things that we are witnessing around us all the time. Now, turn with me to Revelation chapter 11, and let's see how this played out in this this prophecy, in this historic event, and how we can even see these things happening around us today. Revelation chapter 11, back to our prophecy there, and I think the story that we've looked at there on the Mount of Transfiguration will shed more light on this prophecy here. Revelation chapter 11, and we'll pick it up again in verse 3. Verse 3 says... And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. They will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now, this is a prophetic time period that is mentioned here. As a matter of fact, this specific time period is mentioned seven times in the Bible. It is mentioned seven times in the books of Daniel and Revelation. And this time period is referring, when you compare it with all the other places where it is mentioned, it is talking about the time of the Dark Ages. It is talking about the time in which the Papal church reigned supremely in... Um, Europe. As a matter of fact, you can look at this time period and you look at history and you see that from 538 to 1798, the Church of Rome had the authority and the scriptures were subject to the traditions and teachings of man, the teachings of Rome. For there are other prophecies in the book of Revelation, other prophecies in the book of Daniel that deal specifically with what happened at that time. Isn't it interesting that in Revelation chapter 11 and verse three, it talks about this time period and then it says that the two witnesses are clothed in sackcloth during that period. Now, that phrase, clothed in sackcloth, you can also find in other places in the Bible, and it refers to a state of mourning. It refers to a sorrow. Uh, As a matter of fact, whenever something drastic happened, when a city was destroyed or a person died, they would clothe themselves in sackcloth, and it was symbolic of saying, you know, showing that they were in a state of mourning, in a state of sorrow. The two witnesses the word of God, the scriptures are clothed in sackcloth. Why? Because during this period of papal supremacy, the traditions of man were placed above the word of God. The word of God came in the debris and, 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 and was lost in the traditions of man. And so it is interesting to note here in Revelation chapter 11 that we are brought right to this period in which the word of God was under severe attack. Now, Revelation chapter 11 unfolds a second attack that took place around that same time, not only through papal supremacy, but also through atheism. As a matter of fact, if you look here in Revelation chapter 11, take notice of the language in verse seven, Revelation chapter 11, and we continue here in verse seven. It says, when they finished their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them. Talking about the two witnesses, there will be a war against the two witnesses. They will overcome them and kill them and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Then those from the people, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. So we read here in this description of the prophecy that the two witnesses would be cast down they would be utterly destroyed as a matter of fact in revelation chapter 11 the picture is so graphic it talks about that their bodies would lay dead in the streets of course this is talking this is symbolic language figurative language and yet it brings to our attention the seriousness of the attack that was raged on the word of god on the scriptures Now, shortly um, around the same time of the papal supremacy, um, as that supremacy was coming towards its end, as the, the rule of the papacy was coming towards its end, in the latter years of the 1700s, we see a new movement that rose up and made war specifically on the two witnesses, the word of God. It was almost like This new war was planned out because what you see is the false Christianity that had been portrayed before the people for so many years during the Dark Ages caused people to turn now completely away from the Word of God. They had seen the... the teachings of man, the teachings of the church to such a degree that they became disgusted with it and they wanted nothing to do with God. And so this papalism of many years of control of the papacy turned in that, caused in the people a response of atheism, a response of rejecting everything to do with religion, everything uh, of the word of God. And as you look at the late 1700s, you read about the French Revolution that rose up there in Europe. And the events around the French Revolution were absolutely incredible, amazing what took place there. There was a great war raged against the word of God. As a matter of fact, the prophecy tells us that the beast that would make war came up out of the bottomless pit. That phrase of the bottomless pit It comes from the word abyssos. It's the same word that you find back in Genesis chapter 1. Out of nothing, God created the word. Out of abyssos, he started to create. He spoke and things came into existence. This nothingness is a state of, 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 of affairs, a state of being before God speaks his word, before the creative word of God has its effect. Now, the nation which now makes war on God's word is a nation that has removed the very foundation of God's word. It is back to nothingness, so to speak. Now, you look at the French Revolution, which lasted for quite a number of years but particularly from 1793 to 1797 there was a severe oppression of the scriptures it was a period of three and a half years in which france made war against everything noble and true the bible tells us in revelation chapter 11 that for three and a half days, if you look there again at the prophecy in verse, uh, from verse seven, from verse eight, it says their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Verse nine, then those from the people, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into the graves. Three and a half days. In Bible prophecy, a day... A prophetic day is a literal year. We find this principle in Ezekiel chapter 4 and verse verse 6, and we also find it in Numbers chapter 14 and verse 34. These are verses that give us this, uh, this code, so to speak, to unlock Bible prophecy. A prophetic day stands for a literal year. Now, in this prophecy, three and a half days it mentions. And indeed, for three and a half years in France, there was this war against the Word of God. Now, France is here symbolized in figurative language, is described as Sodom and Egypt. Verse 8, it says, it it is called spiritually Sodom and Egypt. Now, Sodom was known for its licentiousness, for, um, we remember the story with Lot living in Sodom. It was a degraded uh, circumstances in that city that caused the Lord to rain fire down from heaven in judgment upon the city of Sodom. When we think about Egypt, what characterized Egypt? Well, Egypt rejected the word of the Lord. Egypt rejected the existence of God. As a matter of fact, when Moses came to Egypt and he said, let my people go, Pharaoh responded to him and says, I do not know the Lord, neither will I let your people go. A rejection of the existence of God. Sodom and Egypt, the characteristics of Sodom and Egypt were manifested in France, around that time period uh, towards the close of the papal supremacy, just prior to actually the uh, termination of that prophecy of the 1260 years, there was a French, the French revolution took place and particularly from 1793 to 1797 for three and a half years, a war was raged on the word of God. It's incredible when you read about the history of that time. Uh, Sir Walter Scott, in his book on the life of Napoleon, he said the following, he said, "The the world for the first time heard an assembly of men born and educated in civilization and assuming the right to govern one of the finest of the European nations, referring to France, uplift their united voice to deny the most solemn truth which man's soul receives and renounce unanimously the belief and worship of a deity unanimously, they, they distanced themselves from everything that had to do with the word of God. Why? Because during this long papal supremacy, they'd become so sick and tired of everything that was presented to them in the form of Christianity, but really was rejection. It was a rejection of truth. And so now they turn away from it altogether and they renounce unanimously the belief in a deity. This happened in the French Revolution, and the prophecy of Revelation chapter 11 brings us to that time. It talks about the two witnesses that were first clothed in sackcloth during the 1260 years of papal supremacy. Then it uh, reveals a new attack that was launched against the word of God through atheism, through the French Revolution, spiritually called Sodom and Gomorrah. When you look at the French Revolution and the things that happened during those years, there was a state of moral debasement and corruption. Baptisms were forbidden, and on the gravestones were written that it was a forever sleep. Marriage vows were reduced to mere civil contracts between two people. France became a pleasure-driven nation, casting down everything noble and true. Crime flourished in those dark years, and Bibles were burnt publicly. A 10-day week was introduced, also something very interesting. The Bible talks about a seven-day week from creation. Six days the Lord created heaven and earth. Seventh day he sanctified. It was a rest day, the Sabbath. The the structure of a seven-day week can be traced back to the Bible. And yet in France, now they instituted a 10-day week. And every 10th day was set aside for rivalry and blasphemy against God. France set up their own god, the goddess of reason, in the person of a pro, uh, 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 in, actually in the person of a woman. For three and a half years, the blood of martyrs flowed from the Galantines in France. It was amazing when you look at the history of this time period. For three and a half years, a nation denied the existence of God, but they reaped a bitter harvest. And at the end of those three and a half years, the nation of France had to come to a recognition of the necessity of, the faith, of faith in God's word as the foundation of morality and virtue. They came to that point that they could not deny that the word of God is indeed a foundation for virtue and morality in a nation. Now look at what the prophecy tells us there in Revelation chapter 11. What was gonna happen after those three and a half prophetic days or those three and a half years? We read in verse 11 and 12 the following, Revelation chapter 11 and verse 11 and 12. It says, now after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, talking about the two witnesses, and they stood on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud and their enemies saw them. It's interesting. It's fascinating that after these three and a half years, the word of God was again exalted. And when you look at what happened shortly after the French Revolution, you will find that indeed the Word of God became very prominent. It was translated into many languages. It was made available to many people. The printing press was invented and the Bibles were made available to many. As a matter of fact, in 1804, the British and Foreign Bible Society was organized. Shortly after that, in 1816, the American Bible Society was founded. The Bible was printed and the two witnesses were were spread to the nations. And now it has been translated into hundreds of languages and dialects, of course. And this book, the two witnesses that we have in our possession today have stood the test of time. Really, when you think about it, this book is a bloodstained book. Many people have lost their lives for us to have to obtain the two witnesses today. So many people have lost their lives. So many people have tried to destroy the scriptures throughout time. And yet it has stood the test of time. You and I possess the two witnesses today. And my friends, it has not lost any of its power. Just as the two witnesses had power to change water into blood, just as the two witnesses had power to stop the rain from heaven, just as the witnesses, two witnesses had power to speak through Moses and Elijah and Zerubbabel, so it has the same power to speak Through you and me today it has the power to change our lives it has the power to create god spoke and it came into existence it still has that same power man has made war on the word of god during the french revolution a great war was launched against the word of god the prophecy is recorded there in revelation chapter 11 and it was result the result in france was a curse The nation was cursed it reaped a bitter harvest they had to come to the recognition that the word of god is indeed the foundation for virtue and morality it was just like the words of malachi he said the the spirit of elijah will return it will unite families but if it's rejected it will bring a curse my friends what are we seeing around us today the word of god is again cast aside the traditions of man are exalted and again our nations are experiencing the curse just like the French Revolution experienced its curse. My friends, it's like history is repeating itself and we are seeing it before our very eyes. And yet Jesus is inviting you and me to experience the two witnesses in a powerful way. Actually, he's inviting you and me, just like Peter, James, and John, to join him up for a mountaintop experience. Like Peter, James, and John walks up on that mountain with Jesus. They looked and they saw Jesus glorified. They saw Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. So you and I are invited to enter into that mountaintop experience with him. To enter into the word of God. You open the two witnesses. And what do you read? You read about Moses. You read about Elijah. You read about the prophets. You read about Jesus. This is our mountaintop experience. And we can add our witness there are two witnesses in heaven Peter uh, there are two witnesses in heaven Moses and Elijah and the third witness God himself that says this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased there are three witnesses on have, on earth Peter James and John and then there's the ladder between heaven and earth and that is Jesus Christ himself but today you are invited to join in that scene you and I are invited to become a witness of Jesus, to open the word of God and to experience him anew, to experience the fresh outpouring of the spirit of God as we study his word. In Psalms chapter 34 and verse eight, the Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. We have to taste and see that the Lord is good. You know, there's a story in the old Testament. It talks about the people of, uh, the people of God, the Jews. Being um, being uh, redeemed out of Egypt, being led out of slavery through the Red Sea into the wilderness. And you'll remember the story of how they come into the wilderness and God rains down manna from heaven. God sustains them during their wanderings in the desert. And every day the manna would be there on the ground and they would pick it up and they would eat it for, for six days. And then on the sixth day they would have a double portion for the Sabbath. When you read that story about the manna, and for the very first time when that manna fell from heaven, the Bible says that they would go out and they would pick up that manna and they would say, and they, and they didn't know what it was, and then they called it manna. Do you know what manna means? Manna means, what is it? That's the question, what is it? Can you imagine being amongst the Jews as you were led out of Egypt and coming into the wilderness? Imagine if you were one of them, and early in the morning you would wake up and go outside. You would see the manna on the ground, and you would pick it up, and you would feel it. You would smell it. You would look at it. Like the Jews, they said, manna, what is it? There was only one way for them to find out what that manna was. They had to do what? They had to taste it. The Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Many times, we pick up the Word of God, and we look at it, we feel it, we, we read it casually, we talk about it. We look at it and we think, what is it really all about? It's prophets and and, and prophecies and parables and poets and history. And it's all of this. It's 40 authors written over a time span of 1500 years on three different continents. We observe it. But the question is, have we really tasted and seen that the word is good? Have we really tasted that we know for ourselves that this is what we want to build our lives on? Is this really sustaining us? Or are we just like the Jews that picked up the manna and said, what is it? There was only one way for them to find out. And there's only one way for us to find out as we take the word of God in our hands and we say, what is it? My friends, we have to taste and see that the Lord is good. We have to allow this to be our spiritual food so that we can be nourished and sustained for the days that are ahead of us. We are seeing a repetition of what happened in the past What happened during the French Revolution is happening again. People are turning away from God's word. People are turning away from the plain, thus says the Lord. And a curse is the result in our nations. We are seeing it around us. And at such a time, God wants to pour out the spirit of Elijah. At such a time, God wants to put his two witnesses on display. And he wants to do it in your life. And he wants to do it in my life. How can we experience the two witnesses? By tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. Not just by picking up the word of God, like the Jews picked up the manna, but by actually tasting and seeing that this is what we are made for. By spiritually partaking of the word of God and allow it to transform our lives. For it it to, to allow the word of God to indeed be the lamp unto our feet and the light unto our path to give us direction in time of need. And certainly we are living in dark times where we need the spiritual direction of the Lord himself. There's another story that illustrates so well what it means to make the Word of God our guide in life. I'm reminded of the story of Nathaniel. He was was sitting under the fig tree. He was contemplating whether or not Jesus Christ was really the Messiah. His friend Philip, which was also a disciple of Jesus, came to him and said, We have seen the Messiah we we have we have met Jesus, Jesus from Nazareth. Come and see for yourself. This is the Messiah. And Nathanael is sitting under the fig tree and contemplating whether really jesus was the messiah or not he was not sure and after he contemplates it after you can see him you know in 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 the picture before you of him contemplating going over the old testament scriptures and thinking if anything good could come out of nazareth but he decides to go and see for himself he gets up he walks to jesus and as he comes to jesus jesus says behold an israelite in whom is no guile jesus introduces um, jesus takes him and Makes him one of the inner circle friends. He makes him one of the disciples. He makes him one of his closest followers. Now, you think about that story, and it's written there in John chapter 1. You can go back and read it later. It's a powerful story. Nathanael says, Who, How can you know me? And Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree. You know, that very story illustrates for us what it means to contemplate. The story of Jesus and make a decision to follow him. Many of us have our own little fig trees where we sit and contemplate the word of God. Many of us have our places, whether it's in our room or at our work or in our car or somewhere in nature. We have these places where we sit down and contemplate and think about the word of God. There are these moments that we pick up the manna and we wonder what it really is. There's these moments that we ask the question, like Nathanael asked the question, can anything good come out of Israel, Can any, oh, so out of Nazareth? can anything good come out of Nazareth and yet there's only one way to find out and that is to go and see and so the invitation of Philip to Nathanael was come and see and Nathanael gets up from under the fig tree and he goes and sees and that's why Jesus could say to him indeed an Israelite in whom there is no guile because he was willing to go and see my friends Jesus will say the same of you he wants to say the same of you Indeed, a child in whom there is no guile, because you have decided to make him first and foremost in your life. And there's another story that fits so well with the invitation to know what is truth, and that is the story of Jesus as he comes before Pilate. It's a sad story. Pilate is, 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 is conversing with the Son of God, with the King of the universe, and Pilate looks at Jesus. And he asks the question that each one of us ask at one point, sooner or later in our lives. He asks the question, what is truth? What is truth? You can read about that in John chapter 18. Imagine Jesus standing before Pilate. You can see it before your very eyes. Pilate asking Jesus the question, what is truth? There was no better person to ask, by the way, asking the embodiment of truth. What is truth? And yet the Bible tells us that right after he asked that question, he walked out of the room and he didn't wait to receive the answer. He walked out. My friends, many times we ask that important, most important question in life, what is truth? And yet we don't stay around to hear the answer. We ask the question, can anything good come out of Nazareth? but we never get up from under the fig tree. We pick up up the manna and we say, what is it? But we never taste it. We come to the point in our lives where we have to go beyond, beyond the merely observing of the word of God, beyond the merely talk about the word of God, but enter into the experience of the word of God. You and I are invited into that experience. You and I are invited to pick up the manna and to actually taste and know for ourselves that this is what we are made for. You and I are invited to enter into the experience of not just contemplating whether Jesus is the Messiah or what he, who He really is, but to go and meet with Him on a daily basis through prayer. To meet with Him and experience the power that He has as our High Priest and soon coming King. You and I are invited to ask that question, what is truth, and to actually stay around to hear the answer because God wants to give us the answer, amen? He wants to give us the answer through his two witnesses. Every single day, we can have a mountaintop experience like Peter, James, and John that went up on the mountain and looked at their savior, appeared he, he, he transformed before he was transfigured before them and appeared in great glory they looked at that scene they saw moses and elijah and they heard the voice of god my friends when you open the scriptures each and every morning you can encounter moses and elijah the old testament the new testament the scriptures you can encounter jesus christ he's the center of scripture and you can hear the words of the father that you are his beloved son And that he wants you to experience these these things so that you can stand on a firm foundation in life and that you can stand through the test of time as his word has stood through the test of time. In the book, Great Controversy, page 593, it says, none but those who have fortified the mind with the truths of the Bible will stand through the last great conflict. Let me repeat that. None but those who have fortified the mind with the truths of the Bible will stand through the last great conflict. My friends, we are facing an immense conflict. What happened in the days of France and its revolution are happening again. People are turning away from the word of God and the nations around us are reaping the bitter harvest. And yet at such a time as this, We are invited to enter into an experience as never before with the two witnesses. We are invited to enter into an experience of tasting and seeing that the word is good and that the word is made for us and we are made for the word. In closing, I want to read one last text in Hosea, the book of Hosea. And that is in the Old Testament amongst the small prophets there, the first of those small prophets right after the book of Daniel, the book of Hosea, and chapter 4 and verse 6. Look at what it says. Hosea chapter 4 and verse 6. It says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, i also will reject you from being priests for me because you have forgotten the law of your god also i also will forget your children it's a solemn warning that is echoing to us and it brings us to the point where we have to make a decision either to build our lives upon the firm foundation of god's word the two witnesses or upon, upon our own philosophies and our own traditions and our own ways. You see, you can turn this verse around. It tells us that the people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. But if you turn it around, you, can say, you could say that the people of God are repaired and restored by an infilling of knowledge, by a receiving of knowledge, by the receiving of the two witnesses. It says, because you rejected God, I will also reject you. We could could turn it around and say, if we receive knowledge, God will receive us. Amen? And then it says, because you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. If we remember the law of our God, He will also remember us. My friends, there is a blessing in building our lives upon the two witnesses. And I pray that you will make the two witnesses your guide, your lamp, and your light and that you will experience the blessings that God has in store for you. How many of you want to make that decision right now tonight? You want to make the Word of God your lamp and your light. Praise God. Shall we have a word of prayer in closing? Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come before you. We thank you, Lord, for the prophecy of the two witnesses. We thank you that though in the past your word has been trampled upon and though in the near future and even right now it is happening again that we need not be afraid but that we can cling to your word and that we have the promise that you will work through us and in us and that you will put your character on display in our lives Thank you, Father, that you have given us the two witnesses. Thank you that they have stood the test of time. And thank you, Lord, that we on a daily basis can open your word and have a mountaintop experience. Help us, Lord, to take, to pick up the manna and to actually taste it. Help us, Lord, to uh, in those moments that we are under our fig tree, figuratively speaking, as we are contemplating your son, Jesus, may we come and see that indeed he is all that he has promised to be. And Lord, as we ask that important question like Pilate, what is truth? Lord, give us the strength to stay and receive the answer that you have in store for us. And may that truth give form to our lives. And we thank you for it. And we thank you for your promises. And we thank you that we can dedicate ourselves to you and you, Lord, knowing that you have promised to start a good work in us and also to accomplish it. And we put our faith in you tonight, asking and praying these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. And for his sake we pray. Amen. If this episode impacted you, please share it with others. Amazing Discoveries is a donor-supported ministry. To help us keep producing content like this, visit amazingdiscoveries.org. And, as always, You can find the visual presentation of this episode on ADTV.watch.